0: join oh that's cool there's a there's wow. a little announcement it makes that is it honestly a little creepy it sounds like this like really malevolent robot and it's uh, next to a cartoon picture of a bear it makes me think of uh five nights at freddy's if you've seen that
1: hmm. I, I
0: actually haven't oh i've never played it but i've seen playthroughs of it and it is it is terrifying it's awful oh man no, don't don't do it okay well uh i guess without further ado uh Hello there, and welcome to the Problem of Reading podcast. Uh, I'm Brevin, and I'm Stephen. But where's Sam?
1: Uh, uh yeah, he was supposed no. to be on here.
0: Yeah, ditching out on us. It's really, I guess, it's really unfortunate. Guess he's leaving us. Yeah, yeah. what a tool. He probably, he alas, probably back stuff. in Oxford beagling or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's <laughs> <all right. laughs> at that point he'll just uh, okay. <laughs> all right how does brevin do it how does how does he do with these intros i don't want to deal with this this is why we need him um <laughs> we do okay so uh apparently uh for the for so for those of you just tuning in um as you can tell uh our our pope loving uh catholic friend brevin is no longer with us um he has uh he has gone on to better things uh including going to better like so, you're stuck with uh, me and Sam right now, uh, or uh, me and Stephen, depending on who you want. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, let's get started with the uh, usual rigmarole. Uh, Stephen, what are you drinking?
1: I am drinking a nice pour of uh, Evan Williams uh, Tennessee whiskey. Ooh, right on. I think it's Tennessee whiskey.
0: Tennessee, yeah, Kentucky, sounds about right. of the
1: states. Yeah, it's whiskey. It's good. Is it um, Tennessee bourbon.
0: or is it Kentucky that is like that is technically the only place that you can truly have bourbon?
1: You know, I'm I'm actually checking the bottle because it is it's Kentucky.
0: Kentucky so, straight so bourbon is, whiskey. Gotcha. So it's Kentucky that yeah. can be bourbon. You can make all the whiskey you want. You can use the exact same recipe mm-hmm. in Tennessee, but then it's not bourbon. No, I, I don't think so.
1: Such a strange culture. Actually, I don't know, because Jack Daniels, isn't that bourbon? I, I think that's bourbon. I don't know, yeah. that's made that's made in Tennessee. Oh well, maybe it's not bourbon, man. They're imposters. Yeah, I mean, maybe I I don't actually know. And the thing is, I don't think either of us know anything about like liquor. I just know yeah. this is good, and it's extremely affordable. Yep, um, and
0: that's all you really so want
1: out of that. It's, it's some of the best rated, um, like budget whiskey anywhere because it's incredibly that's... complicated. It's tasty, and us uh, like your medium bottle is. Seventeen bucks, including tax,
0: which is a lovely thing. That that is one of the nice things about bourbon. Is in general, you can get a reasonable bottle of bourbon for not insane amounts of money. Whereas, like with with Scotch, you're paying for anything under than like fifty dollars, it's going to be absolute garbage. Mm -hmm.
1: Which I feel so very pretentious.
0: Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) It's uh, yeah, the wild world of whiskey, or Mm -hmm. not whiskey uh, liquor.
1: And of course, with our with our lack of knowledge on this, we've we've now lost. You know, one of our two listeners who's a liquor connoisseur. Yep, yep, they, they just
0: stormed out. Introduction
1: segment. They're gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it was nice having them. Uh, I, on the other hand, am not quite as classy as you are, and I am uh, drinking the rest of the uh, pop that my, uh, my family left. Uh, so they visited, and they got a two-liter. And uh, so I'm downing the last of the Coca-Cola. So uh, my insides will be rotted very soon. It's fine. But, you
1: know, if we put our two drinks together.
0: Ooh, now that's we're talking. A good, thing. That's quite yeah. true. though The it, though the mixed drink of like rum and Coke or whiskey and Coke or what have you, it, I don't know, it always struck me as kind of a strange, it tastes not quite sweet enough, but not quite savory enough. It always struck mm. me as kind of this weird oscillating middle.
1: That is fair. I mean, I've heard of people who they get so accustomed to those that then they can't drink Coca-Cola without adding whiskey to it. Ooh. Which yeah. Which is really bad.
0: Yeah, that strikes me, that strikes me as a dangerous uh, place to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could always carry around your emergency Anywhere. flask, but then you really are entering da- in dangerous territories.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, adding adding bourbon to everything. Yeah, that's just don't
0: don't don't do that. Don't which don't I understand, do that. Matt,
1: but um. <laughs> <to do> that. <laughs> yep, you and me both. <laughs> yeah well all right then
0: uh now that we've uh we shall move on to the articles keeping it nice and snappy today uh so i will be presenting the uh first of either one or two articles uh and uh it is called secular monks by andrew taggart and it was um it was recently published in first things and it caught my eye uh being a uh, devout catholic man who is uh pathologically obsessed with the pope and with inquisitions uh of course i would never pass this up uh Slash, I'm, um, this is water. This, Ooh, well done. Well done. Oh, <laughs> 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 righty then. So, uh, the author of this article, uh, Andrew Taggart is a self-described practical philosopher. Um, not the leader of the band, the chain smokers, which I found out actually shares the same name. Um, but he, he regularly works with, uh, what could probably be described as the elite, the movers and shakers as it were. So like CEOs, finance gurus, technologists, venture capitalists, pretty much like everything you think of when you think of like old dudes in cigar or like smoking cigars and in suits or like young guys in like really flashy uh, suits uh, and pretty much everything in that sphere. So in this article, he comments on a trend towards a neo-astheticism that is becoming dominant in this space, uh, which he dubs as kind of a secular monasticism. Uh, and this tre- the trend of the sphere is a particularly strict lifestyle, uh, complete with rigorous biohacking, um, data-driven health optimization, meditation, and punctuated with ex- ascetical practices such as intermittent fasting and ice baths. So, Tagger argues that this is a direct inheritor of the Calvinist view of monasticism, that each believer is a monk all their lives, but strips away the transcendent aspects that Calvinism had already begun removing. Uh, Calvinism had, in essence... Uh, taken the monastic practice and applied it to everyday life. in essence saying that you are going to be practicing the monastic community in in everyday life, you don't need to go to a monastery to fulfill that that calling. So here we actually return to uh, our beloved Weberia with all of its trains as Max Weber is the progenitor of this idea in Calvinism. Um, He wasn't associated with Calvinism, but he commented on this uh, quote as Weber saw it, what distinguished Calvinism was its critique of otherworldly Catholic monasticism, which made room for each devout Calvinist to be a monk all his life. Henceforth all would be devoted to pursuing ascetic ideals within mundane occupations, end quote. So for the secular monk, Work, both personal and external betterment, betterment, that is, is the key to salvation. Just as important to becoming wealthy is becoming powerful as becoming healthy. Uh, Take this rather long quote uh, from the article. Quote, the result is a life design or life hacking of the kind urged by the life designer Tim Ferriss. Ferriss's philosophy, at once secular, ascetic, and Pelagian, begins with metaphysical primacy of human agency. In Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, Ferris asserts that, quote, you are the author of your own life, end quote. As human agents, we should be able to divide our actions into means and ends. And if we're good optimizers, we will discover and use the most effective means by which we can satisfy those ends. This defines human existence as Ferris sees it, an endless game of self-one-upmanship. Ferris sees his job as, crafting, uh, as the crafting of tools for success, any technique detached from any tradition is fair game for mashup and remixing for the purpose of self-fashioning, end quote. So for Ferris, first you define what you want success to be, and then you achieve it by quote, collecting the right field-tested beliefs and habits, end quote. This is all I should emphasize in the, the service of self-betterment, of efficiency and optimization of the self, which I should say isn't necessarily a bad thing in itself. There's nothing wrong with becoming more focused or a more contemplative individual, but what's odd is that these are ancient practices of meditation, asceticism, etc. And these are all for the first time being used not to attain enlightenment, but to attain rather more, shall we say, mundane goals. Meditation is no longer a meeting with the transcendent, but rather a way to train yourself to think clearly during the board meeting or when making a high-stakes financial decision. Contemplating one's death results in biohacking and, quote, leaving a ding in the universe, end quote, a la Steve Jobs, instead of reflecting on the passing nature of all things monasticism is all-consuming there is no room for example for marriage or family both in the religious uh monasticism but also in the secular uh, monasticism it turns out uh the good life read godly life is the free life one free from obligation one cannot leave a ding in the universe when one is caring for one's spouse or watching over a sick child taggart riley concludes quote it is good for a man to be alone end quote so some Somewhat disparate observations that Taggart makes, but honestly, it's a it's a really fascinating approach to this growing trend of kind of quasi spiritualism, but with more of a focus on industry or professionalism or what have you. I've been seeing quite a lot of this stuff point uh, uh, popping up. For example, Ryan Holiday is a big business advocate of stoicism, um, kind of a mishmash of business. Philosophy with the ancient practice of Stoicism, but it all seems to be this goal of self-betterment, not for the sake of becoming better in yourself or a better human or, you know, a la virtue ethics, but rather becoming more professional, becoming more competent, becoming more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which may be somewhat of a straw man on Ryan Holiday. Uh, I have a friend who actually really likes him, but it's still, that seems to be kind of the growing trend. So Taggart's uh, diagnosis in my mind is actually quite spot on.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I, mean, I, I love this article. I, um, it, it kind of describes the, the corporate world pretty well. And like Steven, and you and I both work in, in large companies, yours is a bit larger than mine, but, uh, mm-hmm. um, but you kind of hear this where you see all these, all these trends constantly coming out, um, to how to better yourself and to become a better and happier worker um and i think that's one thing that he kind of neglects but try how to become a more a happier worker for the success of the company company mm-hmm. um if there's anything i wish that he would have talked about more it would be kind of it would be more of the appeal of this lifestyle yeah do you know if he's catholic or what his like his personal beliefs are
0: Oh, I looked him up briefly, but I didn't look up religious affiliation. My impression is, even just from his casual dropping of the word Pelagianism, I'm guessing Christian, either very well educated Protestant or uh, mm-hmm. moderately well educated Catholic Orthodox. So first things crowd.
1: Yeah, first yeah.
0: first things contributor. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, I guess like one one thought I had, and this maybe is reflected in my in my own life, is that you know. He's saying all these things that people are trying to find meaning in this, and they're they're using these ancient practices to build up meaning, but they're 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 looking in the wrong place because of the mundane. And when I express those ideals of trying to find meaning to two people in either the corporate world or in my my personal circles, the reaction I often get is you're way overcomplicating it. And so that might be a, a, a an answer to Taggart is to say, well, these this is kind of reading a lot into these practices a lot more than they were they were than they should be read into. Maybe they are just techniques to um, you know, succeed in the boardroom or succeed in the meeting or just be a happier person. And so that would derive itself from just kind of a a different problem that we're experiencing in Western culture, which is the idolatry of happiness. But that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of the idolatry of happiness meets, mm -hmm. I feel somewhat slimy saying this, but uh, almost a Marxist critique on capitalism uh, that, you know, you Mm -hmm. become an, you become not an end in yourself, but you become a means for the company. You become a means for whatever, Mm -hmm part of this whatever business you're a part of. Um so you are becoming more you are becoming better so you can better serve the company.
1: Which is fair. And if that and and if you're a person who realizes that, there's two options that you can take is you could either change, burn the system down and find meaning somewhere else, or you could turn inward. You could find find meaning in yourself, which is exactly what the um, the secular monks are doing. So maybe this is like to use a Marxist critique, maybe this is a reaction to the commodification of labor and the commodification of persons. You continue to use the Marxist framework, what they're doing here is in reaction to their status as the their status as the proletariat and mm-hmm. their hopeless condition as workers, instead of revolting as Marx predicted they're doing, they're turning inwards. They're revolting against that drive inside of themselves to find some transcendent meaning and finding that meaning within the mundane.
0: Mm. although i'm not almost, sure i would agree that that's necessarily relevant with this particular group it seems that they would be more uh bourgeois rather than proletariat, right i mean you're talking mm. uh you know steve jobs for example i mean he was definitely <laughs> on top of the
1: ladder <laughs> that's a good point yeah that is a good point
0: although i mean to be um, fair like i have coworkers who are also very interested in this and i mean to an extent i want to say good on them they're they're looking into these really valuable practices and maybe it's a it's a good start but personally i I disagree with the idea that the, the end of this is just to be a better worker um, or the end of mm-hmm. this is just to be happier. Um, these yeah. traditions from across the board, you go with, you know, Buddhist meditation or Christian contemplative prayer. All of this is to meet some transcendence. Um, and it seems that yeah. like you said, it's, it's no longer to meet the transcendent. It is to meet the self or it is to, uh, it is self-centered or not self-centered, but well, I mean, somewhat. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was reading this, the, the the big thought I had was at the one point when he said they're not looking; they're using these practices that are traditionally aimed towards the transcendent and using them for just finding success in the in the everyday mundane. And when I read that, the first thought I had was that well, maybe it's not a transcendence or mundane. Maybe it's transcendence in the mundane
0: interesting is, i mean finding finding life especially a lot of these these uh people who are so successful that have they've they've kind of acquired everything and it's still not quite it's it, it's not quite doing it and so they have to turn to these exactly. these practices
1: yes exactly um because they realize that even at their success i mean steve jobs and jack jack dorsey are their two big examples and i mean these are people who are On the cutting edge of technology and should be having the most interesting lives possible and i mean it doesn't take it it doesn't take you don't need to be a christian necessarily to recognize that you don't it's very difficult to find meaning or impossible to find Mm -hmm. meaning from success as being a ceo of one of the world's largest companies um and so what they're turning to is more of um Kind of like I said earlier, like a like a transcendence or a purpose in the everyday things, and those things that are outside of their success as a CEO. Those things, like I mean, Dorsey's case, you know, taking ice baths and meditate, ice baths and meditation, and all these health practices and biohacking, and and all of these different things to make an impact on yourself. That seems uh, these mundane impacts on yourself seem to find more meaning for them than the success. In the world,
0: which it's interesting. So the the whole biohacking thing somewhat fascinates me because it, it is a lot of times kind of linked in with this kind of personal self optimization. And it, it, to the credit of a lot of the personal self optimization, they do seem to take a more holistic approach. You know, spirit, spiritual, mental, um, physical, but. it's still such a fascinating idea though, especially when it's linked with stoicism because stoicism, the whole, the whole point of it is to, well, maybe not the whole point, but one of the big points in it is remembering that you are going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. And biohacking seems to fly directly in the face of that biohacking seems to be kind of protesting saying like, well, maybe I'll die, but I'm going to hold out for as long as possible. Now that's, Hmm. that's certainly not to say that exercise is not good or that like healthy eating habits and, you know, healthy living habits in general is not a good thing. I mean, I try to try to, you know, stay healthy and whatnot. And I think that is a certainly a valuable practice, but it seems that biohacking almost takes it to the next level. Um, I mean, think of even, even the phrase biohacking, it's, it's pretty much saying I'm going to be able to subvert the system, which in in my opinion, somewhat flies in the face of this whole contemplating one's own death. The whole point of contemplating one's death is that you you realize that no matter what happens, no matter how powerful you become, no matter how healthy you become, you're going to die. And that's that's just that. Um, even Steve Jobs kind of comments, I'm going to put a ding on the universe. Like, universe, <laughs> universe doesn't care. It, it's going it, to – once the heat death of the universe comes, nobody's going to remember, remember Apple. Uh, and so I, I – on the one hand, I, I keep going back and forth because I don't want to write this stuff out of hand because there is – Surely, something good about the practices that they're doing, but it does seem to be kind of just in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah. Biohacking is just a fascinating phenomenon. Um, And I do see what you're saying is that it it seems to fly in the face of like recognizing your own humanity. Um, One contrary point, though, is that compared to the majority of American society, of a consumer society, it seems to be far more aware of your. Situation from um, as a finite, limited biological being in the universe. So I, I don't know. Like I mean, yes, it's, it's kinda, it it's kind of it. It seems to be trying to subvert the system, but it's subverting the system. It's not claiming that you won't die necessarily. It's just saying, hey, here's the reality of the situation. How are we going? How how are you going to live because of that reality of the situation? Let's take stock of your body and work with it. Mm,
0: no, actually, maybe, I, I really like that. Yeah. I think that's a rather valid critique on what I, what I just said. Uh, I Yeah, I, oh. that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, because at least, so what you, correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is kind of with a lot of more consumeristic philosophies, it's almost just distract myself that I'm, uh, from the fact that I'm going to die. I I'm going to do whatever exactly. it takes. I'm going to go engage in whatever consumer practices it's going to take to to make me not realize i'm going to die whereas at least the biohacking sure they're trying to subvert the system but they're at least acknowledging the system exists mm-hmm. okay
1: well said exactly well yes yeah. so it, it, it's acknowledgement of the system but then it's taking a you know they you acknowledge your your nature as a as a human um instead of <clears throat> i mean well i think the tiger, tiger would critique this but For this limited point, you acknowledge yourself as a human, as a being, and then you work within those parameters versus a lot of modern society, you try to ignore those parameters. Um, Now other statements like Steve Jobs, the ding ding in the universe, which is, I mean, I love, I think the quote's just so interesting, but to make a ding in the universe does put him in a position of being more divine than human. so, which I think there, there uh, Taggart
0: mentioned that that seems to be one of their uh, their goals. Oh, uh, actually, I just found it. Um, quote: These men want to create something larger than themselves to leave something behind. They want to be like gods. End quote.
1: So they're they're saying we're not gods right now. So instead of the majority of society, which says, "Don't worry, you know, don't worry about God or transcendence or anything, just be happy," they're saying, "No, no, no, we should worry about transcendence. We want to be gods, which is so close."
0: It but. really is. It, I mean, I'll almost. I think I, I would still take that over a just kind of ignoring the the, the whole situation. Mm-hmm. At least there's almost a yeah, I mean, a fierceness that comes with the. No, I I want to do these practices. I want to you know master my own fate and 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 such. Uh, there's there's still something almost you can work with that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll take a kind of benefit or a beneficent. Uh, Utilitarianism, overheatingism, any day.
0: Great. Um. So the things he did go somewhat on a on a tangent with, but with, but I think it actually is quite relevant. Uh, so uh, Taggart notes that a lot of these guys they are wildly successful. They have all the resources they could ask for. They are set in life. One thing he notes is that most of them are not, or not most of them are not married, but a large part of them are not married. Um. And most of them do not have children um, that the average marriage or the average children per household, uh, I believe, I can't find the number, but it is, it is shockingly low, especially when you get to that sphere. And it, there is, I mean, I think it's almost a cheeky hmm. comparison that he makes with monasticism, given that monastics like explicitly eschew any sort of marriage, both marriage, but also just sexual relations. It, more likely than not, you know, like it's more of casual sexual sort of situation in those spheres. But that said, it is a very interesting comparison, and there is this rather uh, the I, I think I called it out in my in my summary. There is this rather sad conclusion he comes with um, that the aesthetic conception that they have of this life, this kind of hacking their own fate, requires many things to be given up, such as wife, husband children uh whoever takes this road is pretty much eschewing any sort of spouse or or children in exchange for this well this is kind of maybe being able to to win over fate uh because one can't commit to mastering one's own life when one has to care for one's uh, spouse or children and i i thought that a very interesting and unique take that i had not considered before most of the time what i've heard is that it's more of the generic W- much what you were calling out sam the more hedonistic, just couples just don't want to have children because it's going to cost money and time and whatnot but this is more deliberate this is more no having a wife or, or husband or children this is going to disrupt my mastery of my own fate which i thought was a, a rather uh brilliant insight
1: yeah and i don't think we would ever call like paul selfish for saying um for encouraging individuals to not have to not get married
0: um oh certainly not
1: yeah so i guess this is kind of a question that's been in the back of my head this whole i mean we've touched on it but is this transcendence inherently selfish in the same way that american hedonistic society is selfish i also love how we just we've just completely conceded and agreed the point agreed that american society is hedonist in this conversation
0: (laughs) we're we're not even trying to debate (laughs) that point we just acknowledge it (laughs) it. (laughs) to (laughs) any of our non-american listeners right now um you can just take that as a gift that we're going to give you you can now say even the americans think that they're hedonists
1: oh the question i was asking was is this secular monk inherently selfish Is it selfish to seek for this transcendence?
0: I think it is, well, selfishness unfortunately brings about a whole host of connotations. So, I mean, to an an extent, you cannot do a purely selfless act because you are the one doing it, right? Like, I can't, hopefully what I choose, I choose because I think it is better than the alternative, even if it's something to the effect of, like, I am giving my life up. One could say that was a very selfless act, but at the same time, more accurately, it was an act that I still chose. Um, a selfless yeah, act would be more of something was done to me and I just didn't have any choice in it. Um, mm. So I, I, I guess I just want to add that grain of salt before, I, before you know, we entered that. I, I think it's difficult to distinguish between pure selfishness and pure selflessness. Um, so mm. they are selfish. I, would, I think I would argue they are selfish, but in a much different way than the casual hedonist would be selfish. Because I I think Taggart comments that a lot of their, for example, meditation is more towards like giving themselves an edge, um, kind of mastery over oneself, which the weird thing is you could probably still make the same argument that the, you know, Buddhist or Hindu or Christian monk do this very similar practices. They do very similar things, but I think they would argue, but we are trying to empty ourselves. We are trying to. Escape ourselves and become one with the divine. We are trying to meet the transcendent.
1: Yeah, we're in in the Christian monk sense. We are we're praying for the rest of Christ's body.
0: Uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the whole kind of paradoxical. You you lose yourself only to find yourself and more than you could have ever had without. I I, some something something something. C.S. Lewis who says it far more brilliantly than I could articulate. (laughs) Yeah. Lewis, patron yeah. saint of evangelicals.
1: <laughs> he is. You know, I once knew somebody who who said that C.S. Lewis if this is an evangelical. Uh, C.S. Lewis should be added to the canon. <laughs> I mean, to <laughs>
0: I'm actually a little surprised that the Anglicans haven't added him to the canon. Like he was, like he was devoutly Anglican, and he. I wonder if you could argue that he's a doctor oh. of the... That he would be a doctor of the Anglican Church. He's definitely... I mean, definitely he wouldn't be canonized by the Catholic or mm. Orthodox, but Anglicans still have saints. So.
1: Really? I don't think so. And and so here's why. Well, there's two reasons why. So we're going to go to a tangent with C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, that's fine. I'm fine with it. I'm always fine with going on a tangent with C.S. First, Lewis. Yeah. First is that, I mean, he was he was not a Christian for a very long time, and he was mostly persuaded to Christianity by um, apologetic arguments, which is not a problem. but. Mm. His contributions theologically were mostly reiterating um, previously agreed upon points. Like I don't, uh, I guess I don't think Lewis necessarily innovated on much or drew drew more meaning out of the scripture or out of tradition or anything. He was more reiterating points and feeding them back to a modern audience. I mean, his uh, the Abolition of Man, amazing hmm. series of lectures. Absolutely I need love to it, that. but it's just him it's it's really good um and he's just but he's just feeding aquinas through modern british culture and and speaking and and speaking about it through a british primary um primary school text which is brilliant but um but ultimately he's not really innovating on anything the second thing is that in the uk they hate C.S. Lewis.
0: <laughs> really now. I mean, I'm guessing he's probably quoted by every single American that comes over there. Um
1: but really well, they don't more, they don't like him? More exactly in Oxford they hate C.S. Lewis. Um the, the program I was with it was they had a, a course that you could take that was C. S. Lewis in context. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean sounds fun because like yeah, yeah. in Oxford you can study C. S. Lewis. In Oxford, why not? Um I was I not taking course but i had a bunch of friends who were one of my roommate was he loved it is it great and then i was talking to some of the the brits and they were like oh all these americans all they want to come out here and do is study c.s lewis study a real scholar because in oxford he's not viewed as a real scholar because he got his position basically for writing a load of, kids, of, kids, of children's books
0: i've heard that he actually. Pretty much to an extent, ruined his career chances at serious scholarship because he wanted to write children's literature. Exactly. Um, which I mean, I yeah. to be fair, yeah. I can't imagine that just like you become the children's lit guy, and even if you have brilliant things to say, no one's going to take you that seriously because they just associate your name with children's lit. Exactly,
1: hmm. and that's kind of how it happened. I and mean, he didn't, but then he didn't really have any serious contribution outside of that, like a, yeah. in a scholarly sense, and so. I guess I should I should clarify my previous statement. He's not hated. He may not be hated in the UK universally. He's definitely hated in Oxford.
0: Um, <laughs> nice, and um, maybe in the UK he's not overly. People aren't overly fond.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and also the UK is just generally secular, and so yeah, the Chronicles of Narnia and those kind of stories. That I mean, even m- many relatives I have who are who are now atheists. Still cherish those stories, or in friends I have who who love the Chronicles of Narnia are atheists or agnostic, and mm. so it's something that that American culture is a little bit more receptive to, which is really ironic given that lots of people read them and think that they these are these very British books. Really, they're 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 more well received in America. Interesting, um, yeah. Especially, and maybe we'll cut a lot of this, but he's especially hated when people compare him to Tolkien, because um. scholars in Oxford are like you know they were friends sure Tolkien was a real scholar Lord of the Rings was a side project of his he was a legitimate linguist who who made the the authoritative translation of Beowulf he knew he knew things C.S. Lewis was just writing on his coattails and writing children's books trying to compete and never could
0: which I mean to be fair if you compare Chronicles of Narnia to Lord of the Rings I, I enjoyed Chronicles of Narnia, but yeah, they I they don't have to hold a candle to Lord of the Rings. It, yeah. it just they just don't. Although
1: Especially in the world building.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh I mean, yeah. I think I would still contend that his theological work, even though it may not have contained any novelty, the impact that it had of being able to distill a lot of these really complicated ideas to a more general audience. I think <laughs> there is something certainly praiseworthy about that. Um so, to the second point, yes, he was not a serious scholar, especially in his field of you know english mm-hmm. literature i I think I would argue that his theological work was slightly better than that um though maybe mm-hmm. as far as serious scholarship is concerned, probably not the The scholarship he was bringing was probably more indicative of the fact that he was a professor at Oxford and therefore very, very intelligent, but you know not a you know not quite as solid as the you know the the most brilliant theologian he he was not a bonhoeffer mm-hmm. or a uh i don't know who is the other big uh theologian uh, of the time Bart, Bart thank you Bart. yes yeah. so yeah okay fair point though i think to yeah. your first point though i would argue that saint hood is, does not necess- necessitate uh novelty although i think you you answered my question when i asked like would he be considered a doctor of the church and that answer would probably be no mm-hmm. um but yeah. i think saint hood would not uh, does not require novelty so but i mean still you you've got a point at the anglican church it, it, which is in uk if uk doesn't really like him then yeah that makes sense
1: yeah and also the the, the third point would be that he's a lot of his positions are quite theologically conservative right. and some of the bits of his books especially the third narnia book um have con, like have anti um muslim connotations to yeah there were a few publications. that's not gonna fly yeah that that isn't gonna fly
0: (laughs) there are a few points where i like i do recall reading some stuff and not really thinking much of it but now i look back and it's like "Mm, you know probably could have done without that
1: (laughs) yeah the the desert people with turbans and dark skin who worship the evil rotting meat god
0: yeah, uh, Tash, I yeah. think it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although, yeah. the scene where the Tashpin warrior ends up in Aslan's country in book seven, that that was quite lovely. But yes, probably could have done without the clearly poking fun mm-hmm. at uh, Muslims.
1: Yeah. love that seems lovely. But also, the most controversial thing I read for years because it seemed to say that you could go to heaven if you didn't believe it, if you didn't. Like... Mm-hmm. Ask for repentance for your sins.
0: See, that is the that is my shield. Whenever I start talking to people who are a bit more theologically conservative than me, or, or a lot more mm-hmm. theologically conservative than me, uh, whenever I mention you know inclusivism or what have you, and they start getting all over me, I am just I just drop C.S. Lewis, and immediately the yeah. arguments you know they they fall silent in reverence, and uh, I walk away victorious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Oh, actually the last the last reason and then we can get back are you and you back. really don't want cs Lewis to be a saint do you I don't know I don't think you should be a saint but um, Gosh, the God. last reason is that he actually was was strongly he was pretty indecisive about his about his faith like he went to the Anglican Church because it was what was available but he was actually this is according to my orthodox friend but he was actually quite um not orthodox friend interested in orthodox friend? Friend. but Or oh, um, interested
0: in orthodox okay yeah
1: you know cryptodox but <laughs> Yeah, yes. Um, the the third, the, the fourth point would be though that he was actually very interested in Orthodoxy. Really? And yes. He he studied the kind of he learning theology and learning about Christianity, and he finally decided that he was he was on board with this thing. And Tolkien was obviously fighting so hard to to get him to convert to Catholicism. Oh yeah. And he actually was far more interested in Eastern Orthodoxy. But there were no Eastern Orthodox churches like around him. Interesting. Then, That's funny because
0: um, so about a year ago, I actually was having a debate with uh, with an Orthodox individual, and she like I think I of course being me, I brought up C.S. Lewis, and uh, she she had said like, well, he would have been Orthodox if if he mm-hmm. had been you know if he had known about it, and I countered like he was a brilliant or you know Oxford scholar, he knew about Orthodoxy, he was devout Anglican. I'm huh. I'm next time I see her, huh. I may have to eat my words and say, like, actually you may have no, been was, more
1: right than me. Yeah, he was interested. I mean, I know that they're He never convert converted York. for sure, but I mean Yeah, he was interested in it. I mean, and and, and it may have not have it wouldn't have been actually the reason that it was not around because I know for a fact there's a very historical Orthodox parish in Oxford. Um mm-hmm. I just I happen to know that. And, actually, uh, on on actually, that
0: note, sorry, yeah. we're going on all sorts of tangents <laughs> yes. right now. But on that <laughs> note, have you uh, have you heard of a uh, Metropolitan Callistus Ware?
1: Metropolitan Callistus Ware is the bishop of the uh, of the diocese that covers Oxford, and is yeah. based in Oxford. Yeah,
0: likewise. yeah. So I've I've listened to a couple of his lectures. Apparently, he spoke at SPU a couple of times, um, or once or
1: twice, and I uh, yeah, really enjoyed is. those lectures and. Yeah, well, oh, were, I mean, were you there? Because I currently have his. I well, no, I, I see him, but I have his book in actually now sitting on the table in front of me. Because we every you found, every uh, core theology class is required to read it. No kidding. Yep, huh. it's very strange at this at this progressive evangelical school. They the one universal part about the third theological the theology class is you read Quiznos where.
0: No kidding. Is that the? Yeah. Uh uh the orthodox way or is it a different yep. one? Oh, huh, no kidding
1: way. it's a good I book. No idea yeah
0: good. i i started reading through i haven't finished it but yeah, yeah he's a good great. writer good great speaker very good. calm voice yeah, i mean he he's don't. british so yeah
1: you know. anyway, wow, anyway wow, that was a
0: tangent. <laughs> that really was we went on a few tangents there uh but yeah so C.S. So Lewis, Lewis clearly is not be. going to be a saint of an, uh, the Anglican church or any church yep. for that matter, though. I, I do love how the, the fact that pretty much every denomination tries to claim him, but apparently Orthodox might actually have a reasonable claim on him.
1: If, hmm. Yeah, and that, that, that is the nice thing about Lewis is that if nothing else, he does serve as a great unifier. It really does. Yeah. We need more of in the church. Quite true. Quite true. <laughs> Rants.
0: Oh, uh Rants. Yes, indeed. Rants. <laughs> Sam, <laughs> what are you angry about?
1: Oh, uh, uh, what am I angry about? I actually haven't had a planned rant. So this is going to be a um, a channeling of emotion. And, okay. um Is it yeah. just going to be
0: you screaming for like 30 seconds? Straight?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, let's see here. Um, let's see here. Um, so the democratic race has collapsed. And, you know, it's... Okay, this could get a little bit political. Let's just see how this works. All right, so we're we've seeing never shied from
0: being political before. I, at especially least, especially me, have. I, yeah. I never have.
1: Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm so surprised that the caveat <laughs> is is um, is coming to not a close, but is definitely being narrowed down between and and the the progressive, inclusive young party of our nation has. Distilled itself down to choosing between two candidates, two old white men, both of whom are over the age of seventy-seven. So, the, the I don't really have much of a, and I and I do plan on voting in the Democrat primary because why not? But um, I guess my my rant here is not so much the fact that they've distilled themselves down to those two candidates. But the reaction to it, the reaction that I've seen from several um, acquaintances I have, who are further left than Bernie Sanders, who are looking at this and saying that this is a tragedy for the Democratic Party and that they have um, completely lost their way by not including people of color, by not including women, um, et cetera, and that is that is a problem. We can we can talk about that problem later, but. I guess that my rant would be that they brought they they somewhat brought this on themselves, and by the way that this race has been run with with allowing far too many candidates into the race by and by, by opening up with basically any any hatred of Donald Trump um, qualifying as a viable presidential candidate, they limited themselves down to not being able to pick an inclusive candidate, and I guess I guess what I'm saying is. Sorry, this is going to be a disjointed rant. So edit it together to make it make sense. But um, th- this what we're experiencing right now is the fruit of year uh, of years of of sheer hatred of Trump, and that being the only uniting factor. At the end of the day, if they want to look for inclusivity, you need to be able to open that up to talking about actual policy and and actually having a debate versus trying to find your own niche in a um, in intersectionality um metric matrix there's my rant does that make any sense
0: I, I i definitely i i think that really does uh we typically don't talk after rants but i mean i'm i'm okay with that like that oh i was just asking you just, yeah no that's not, <laughs> we can, that sounds like we can cut this, that, but. that that sounds reasonable to me i mean it it is kind of it's honestly kind of remarkable because it, one would think especially with how mobilized a lot of the younger vote is and how more inclined towards uh, democrats a lot of the younger vote is that and also how motivated non or anti-trump voters are both within the conservative but also definitely in the liberal uh camps one would think that they kind of had a clear path but unfortunately though what you said pretty much their only platform was anti-trump or at least that was considered a viable platform Mm -hmm. in and of itself and it's just kind of a tragic thing to to see them just kind of throw away a, what was ostensibly a, a decent opportunity to kind of win an election and just kind of throw away a lot of really kind of cool opportunities they had.
1: Yeah. And I guess for a second wind of my rant, just that point that I kind of realized. Um, mm-hmm. For, for a, a second, a, a rant B um, <clears throat> is, I guess, a, a, the example of Elizabeth Warren and the reaction I've seen to Elizabeth Warren. I mean, is she so she dropped out of the race today. Um, this is this is Thursday that we're speaking. She just dropped out this morning. And the reaction I've seen to this is we, you know, the most moral candidate has just dropped out of this race. Now, Elizabeth Warren is a fine candidate. Um, she 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 I think is a mediocre progressive. And, you know, fair, somewhere between Biden and Sanders in her policy. She kind of has that policy wonk um uh sort of law professor, you know you know, professor vibe, which is exactly who she is. Um, and she's a fine candidate. But to say that she's the only moral option, exclusively because she is a woman, I think is is the problem with the Democratic today, is that you're not, um, it, it is by reducing everybody to to their their inner skin of attributes, and not looking at actually what we're electing, which is the President of the United States, you're neglecting a lot of of competent candidates, such as Elizabeth Warren, such as Kamala Harris, such as any of the other candidates who check far more boxes than the two that we have right now, but also, um, but also may make better candidates, simply because by reducing it down to that, you can't win the, the national electorate. There we go.
0: Well said, well said. Uh, my rant isn't quite as political, although it is becoming a political firestorm right now. Coronavirus, COVID-19. Jeez i know right so uh for those of you uh who may not be aware uh i live in seattle uh i'm also by the way i'm not actually brevin uh if you haven't caught that yet um so i i, I this is steven i live in seattle and uh for the past sam what would you say like what two weeks or so the panic has been kind of week an increasing and
1: week and a half yeah, yeah. I mean, we got two weeks i mean yeah so people have been like
0: growing more and more concerned over this. And to be fair, like, you know, viruses, this is nothing to sneeze at, as it were. <laughs> um, and this is like this is a, a rather serious thing. But at, at the same time, the amount of sheer panic that has been building up to the point where like shelves are being completely stripped of face masks, uh, for example, or like water bottles and various like quasi survival goods, such as hand sanitizer, like these things are being completely ripped from the shelves. It's, it's becoming just to the point of almost absurdity how much people are panicking over what is amounting to be a, a uh, definitely not a benign disease, but not that malevolent of uh, of one. At least I say now in the early stages of the Seattle, uh, you know, infestation,
1: as it were. You just so, watch it in two months, Seattle won't be it won't exist.
0: It will be, we'll be wiped be. <laughs> off the face of the earth. I will be dead and this will be played at my funeral and people will just think, geez, what a douchebag. Um, and I'll deserve it. I'll deserve it. I apologize. Um, I, I I think, honestly, I, my rant takes it more philosophical when I think of Walker Percy's um, uh, comments in Lost in the Cosmos, where he starts commenting on how people get oddly excited when they read about kind of uh, wars and rumors of wars, as it were. How When they read about disasters and how you know, bad things are happening and Im- imminent doom is upon us and whatnot. And this this weird excitement that they get, but if I'm being honest, so do I. And how there is this weird thrill I get on, like, oh man, maybe, maybe, maybe this is really gonna be bad. And oh man, I gotta prepare. It, it, it's just such a strange and bizarre feeling. Uh this weird love affair we humans have with our own doom. And uh so all that to say, my rant is: people stop panicking so much over coronavirus. Be safe, practice, you know, saniti- sanitization. Don't go near people with uh, coronavirus if you know they're known to have it. But at the same time, this isn't the end of wash the world. Your hands. Hopefully, wash your hands. Yes, wash your hands. You it's- know, <laughs> it's uh, it's about that simple. Hopefully, we'll see. Uh, again, yeah. if uh, if I'm dead from coronavirus in two months, well. You know how right I was. It would be ironic would be, enough that I would accept that as my fate. It would be really um, funny. Yeah, it would be. It, 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 would be. it, it honestly would be. I, I would be okay with that. I would be okay with some some yeah. good-natured chuckles at my funeral. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Dang it, now I'm actually kind yeah, of frightened I mean, that like I just... have tempted the fates. Like, I've poked the stick at the gods, and now they're just going to smite the crap out of me.
1: Yes, smite you with the coronavirus. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, maybe this is just us trying to find some kind of transcendence in the mundane. Like transcendence in the mundane preparing to 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 avoid illness during a season when people get ill,
0: Here we go. We must look to ourselves, we must meditate, we must take ice baths, and that will help us sh- sh- help shield us from the uh the oncoming uh you know storm of the coronavirus, the apocalypse and of the
1: modern age put on put on by face mask and sanitized by hands
0: <laughs> then he will be able to resist the flaming arrows of. <laughs> <laughs> for I am coronavirus, you're not. <laughs> okay, well, for everyone here at the problem of or problem with reading podcast, Brevin uh, wasn't here. I'm Stephen, and I'm Sam, and we will see you next time. Bye. bye, bye, bye. Uh I honestly forget we were go- where we were going with that. Somehow ended up on C.S. Lewis. I think we were talking about children at one point. C.S. Lewis, you know, Oxford, Clistus we'll, World. We'll
1: have Brevin edit it together and make it um Can you imagine him just listening to this recording and just be like, what the hell you guys? <laughs> <laughs> I am never missing <laughs> another episode. <laughs> this is encouraging, Brevin. Don't ever leave us alone with the with the recording. Um, equipment again. I mean, you
0: left two evangelicals, or at least quasi-evangelicals, alone, and of course we're going to spend most of our time just talking about C.S. Lewis, Lewis and the pros and cons.
1: Yep. Oh man. Well, anyway, transcendence in the mundane, probably. Yeah. Let's not do that. Let's find transcendence in in Lewis. Transcendent
0: and in Lewis. That's in Lewis. that's where we will find transcendence. C.S. Lewis. Yes. Amen. Amen.